Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 10. Be strong and take courage. There are times when that's not easy to do, isn't it? There are times when what seems strong is our problem, our circumstance, our need. There, there's a phrase that's going around in, in our culture that, you know, it's just one of those things that kind of gets under your skin, especially if your parents raised you in a certain way. You know, my folks raised me that I wasn't supposed to say yep or yeah or uh-huh to adults. I was supposed to say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And if I did not, my ear always got kind of turned around. Actually, my lobes are backwards, but uh, they don't look that way because they've been turned that way so long. But, you know, there's, you know when, when somebody, uh, when you said thank you, you're supposed to say you're welcome. We don't do that in our culture anymore. We say, no problem. And I, it especially bugs me when waiters and waitresses say that. You know, they bring something in. You're trying to be nice. You know, my goal when I go to a restaurant is I want to be nice to the waiter and waitress as long as I can. (laughs) Because I figure they've had a rough day. They've had people treat them like jerks and not appreciate them. So I'm trying to be nice, you know. So uh, thank you. No problem. Thank you. No problem. And I just want to say, no, it's your welcome. It's not a problem because you're being paid for this and your tip depends on you doing a good job, so you're going to get paid and a tip. So it's not a problem, it's just you're welcome. That's all, just can you say you're welcome? Pastor in California had gone to this restaurant and he had just heard that all he could out of this one waiter. Everything he said, the waiter said, no problem. More water, no problem. More tea, no problem. More coffee, no problem. Hey, dessert menu, no problem. Hey, thanks for coming here, no problem. You know, hey, it just, he said, do you realize that all you ever say is no problem? And the guy said, no, do I do, I do that? He said, yes. <laughs> so all you say is no problem. He said, well, he said, I guess it's just a habit that I picked up because the truth of the matter is I've got all kinds of problems. Quite honestly, most of us live on a cliche level of relationships. And when people ask us how we're doing, we say, hey, no problem. But underlying just below the surface is a flood of problems. Some small, some big, some seem insignificant to others, but they're significant to us. And I want us to see how to handle one of the problems that we have because I believe it's one of the great tools of the devil to use against Christians, and that's the problem of discouragement. What happens when you're discouraged? What happens when you feel defeated? When you look around and it doesn't look like there's any hope or any answer, when it seems like your problems are multiplying and, and you've been praying and you've been praising God, but but things have not been working like they're supposed to. Nehemiah chapter 4 gives us insight into the problem of discouragement because you see, when you lose heart, you lose your dream. And when you lose your dream, you lose your will to live and your will to fight. Oswald Sanders makes a profound statement when he says, when Satan wants to gain victory over a man and keep him from fighting the good fight of faith, 
He does not have to throw an unconquerable foe against that individual. All he has to do is change the person's attitude toward victory. For when that man is convinced that victory is no longer possible, he is already defeated. Now, we looked last week at the three attacks that Satan uses in our lives. He uses uh, resistance, and he uses rumor, and he uses ridicule. Now, when he's done those, if he's got us knocked off balance, he will begin to run a propaganda campaign. And he will begin to say things and use people to say things to us that just further drag us under and get us to the point where we feel absolutely defeated and overwhelmed. Let's begin reading in Nehemiah chapter 4 and verse 8. And all of them conspired together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause a disturbance in it. But we prayed to our God, and because of them we set up a guard against them day and night. Thus in Judah it was said, the strength of the burden bearers is failing. Yet there is much rubbish, and we ourselves are unable to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know or see until we come among them, kill them, and put a stop to the work. Now, right there in verse 11, you can see that when you get discouraged, the enemy goes for the kill. I mean, when he gets you focused on your problem, when he gets you focused on the obstacle, when he gets you focused on the rubbish, he goes for the kill. He tells you now, it's all over, it's just the date, it's just on the calendar when you're finally going to succumb and quit and give up. Look at verse 14. When I saw their fear, I rose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the, Lord, of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. And it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan. Then all of them, all of us, returned to the wall, each one to his own work. One man turned the discouragement of entire people around. Now I want you to go back up to verse 5, if you would, and underline the little phrase, they have demoralized the builders. How do you cope with demoralizing times? How do you cope with discouragement? If you're a leader, if you're the head of your family, if you're in your business and things are not going well, if something's going on and it's got you discouraged and demoralized, what do you do? How do you respond? Well, there's, there's something you need to know about the difference between critics and leaders. Critics demoralize Leaders encourage. Critics point out all the problems. Leaders tell you about the opportunities. Critics will try to tell you why you can't do something. A leader will tell you how you can get it done. A critic will tell you to doubt. A leader will tell you to have faith. You see, there's a world of difference between a critic and a leader. Verse 6 they were demoralized. They have demoralized the builders. But in verse 6, so we built the wall, for the people had a mind to work. Now, the, the genius of the Christian faith to me is not that it is the exemption of problems. I don't know anybody that's honest that will say, since I was saved, I haven't had any problems. It may be because you've just been saved, but if you live a few more days, you'll have some. All of us have problems. All God's children got problems. 
You know, I mean, everybody has a problem. The, the genius of the Christian life is not that God somehow comes and, and plucks us out of our problems and takes all our problems away. The genius of us is that God walks through those problems with us. That we're not isolated, that we're not alone, that we're not a man on an island by himself, but we are surrounded by the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the encourager, the one who the Scripture says comes alongside us. God's Spirit in us, but there are those moments when God's Spirit comes alongside us. That was the name of Barnabas, the son of encouragement, the one who came alongside, the paraclete. It's one of the roles of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes alongside in your life when you need encouraging, when you need somebody to lift you up. Now, in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, Phillips translates it this way, and it's in your notes. We are handicapped on all sides, but we are never frustrated. We are puzzled, but never in despair. We are persecuted, but we never have to stand it alone. We may be knocked down, but we are never knocked out. There's a problem of discouragement, and every one of us, if we are honest, has to admit that there are those moments, those valleys, those times in our life when it seems like everything is overwhelming us. And you just cannot get out of the rubbish in the rubble and get back on top of your life. And you remember when it wasn't that way, but you don't know that you're ever going to get out of it. There's a pain to that. There is a pain of discouragement unlike any other pain. And those who have been touched by it, and it doesn't matter what your personality type, and some people say only certain types of people become discouraged. I'm convinced everybody has to deal with discouragement at some point. When you have that sense of discouragement, all the pet answers in the world don't help. You feel hopeless. You feel like nobody understands. You feel like even if you explained it, they wouldn't identify with it. You feel isolated. Your emotions begin to rule your day, and, and anxiety begins to run at fever pitch. And it's only in those times that we can go to the Lord in prayer and say, God, you know what I'm feeling. Nobody else may understand. I may not sense that anybody else is with me in this, but you know what I'm going through. And there are four reasons, I think, for discouragement. Because, you see, discouragement usually occurs at about the halfway point. Uh, these people were about halfway through building the wall. If you've ever remodeled a house, you know that about halfway through that project, you think, honey, let's sell this sucker and buy a new one already done. <laughs> you know, remodeling always costs more than you thought and takes longer than you thought. And you just get discouraged. If you're building a house about halfway through it, you think, this is not worth it. When you're starting a new business, about halfway through the process of getting all that going, you start thinking, you know, maybe I ought to just go do something else. One of the reasons why our culture is affected so much by the midlife crisis is because it's at the halfway point where we begin to evaluate our lives and ask ourselves the question, am I really doing what God created me to do? Is my life going in the direction I thought it was going to go in? I had all these dreams and all these ideals when I was a teenager and in my 20s, and now here I am, and, and I don't have the job I want. I don't like my job. I don't like the location. I don't like the money I'm making. I'm looking at retirement, and I'm scared about what's ahead of me there, and we have a midlife crisis. It happens all the time. Why? 
discouragement begins to set in. We begin to focus on our problems and focus on our circumstances and, and focus on our events and what we have and what we don't have. And all of a sudden we think it's not worth it. Discouragement can quickly tailspin into depression. Now there are four reasons why discouragement comes and they're all here in the text. Number one, fatigue. Notice that he says the strength of the burden bearers is failing. That word failing means stumbling or staggering. The, the burden was so great that they were beginning to stagger under the load of it. They were stumbling. They were getting weak kneed and wobbly and they were failing. The, the newness of the project had worn off. I've got to tell you, if we go into any kind of building project here, about halfway through it, we're going to get fatigued. And we're going to begin to stumble. And we're going to think, you know, what's the deal? And then we'll just be worn out. We'll be tired. And you need to recognize that it's coming because it just is a fact of life that when you're involved in something major or when there's something going on in your life, fatigue is a factor. That's why you need to rest and exercise because fatigue can overwhelm us easily. Number two frustration. Yet there is much rubbish. You ever been on, a, been on a building site? All the rubbish? You, you know, you, you, you kind of start looking at a building site like you look at your kids' rooms. When they take it off, why can't they just put it in the dirty clothes basket? Why does it stay on the floor? And, and you, you're on a building site, and you see all these things laying around and say, you know, why can't somebody like you know, on Friday afternoon, instead of killing time and, and us paying money for that, why can't they, like, clean up? There's a thought. Notice, yet there is much rubbish. You see, this had to do with their perception more than the reality because they had done half the work. There was much rubbish before they got started. Now they've built the wall up to half its completion, but their perception is there's all this rubbish. Well, there's not as much as there used to be. But you see, we can get the idea, after all I've done and all I've invested and all I've spent and all my time and all my energy, it looks like I'm not going anywhere. And that leads to frustration. Number three, failure. We ourselves are unable to work. Now in verse 6, the people had a mind to work. The Hebrew says they had a heart to work. Now it says we are unable to work. What happened? They lost their heart. So it's not worth it. We can't do this. Now, at one point, they thought they could. Now they say, we can't. It's impossible. We'll never get this finished. The enemies are telling us we can't finish it. The work is overwhelming. There's no way we're going to get this done. And they had a sense of failure, which led to number four, which is fear. Verse 11, the enemy is going to come and overtake us. So what are some principles for dealing with discouragement? Number one, take the problem to God. Verse 4. Hear, O our God, how we are despised. Verse 9, but we prayed to our God. Now there's a law of leadership here, and that is when you are ridiculed and attacked, don't take it out on people, talk it out with God. You know, I, I see people and they write letters to the editor, and I think, you know, if, if you prayed about that for an hour, it would probably help you feel better than writing a letter to the editor. You know, because, I mean, people just want to use public forums to beef. And, and you know, you, you can buy an ad or you can get airtime or you can call the news media or whatever you want to do, but the truth of the matter is the person who can solve your problem is one you can't see. And that's the Lord. The Lord's the one that can take care of your problem or anything that's causing you a problem. 
So you talk it out with God. Now, notice he says, God, look at how despised we are. Now he tells that problem to God. He does not take it out on the people. I talked to a pastor last night. He told me, he said, you know, he said, I haven't gotten one encouraging note from a member of my church in six months. And to be honest, I, I didn't know what to say because, you know, I get encouraging notes every week. I mean, I get, I get several prayer cards every Wednesday night, and, and I get encouraging notes from people all the time. So, you know, I didn't want to say, well, I do. I get encouraging notes all the time. I didn't want to add to his burden. He said, you know, I've done 45 funerals. I've done six or seven weddings. I've been at the hospital. I've done all. He said, I haven't had one person write me a note and say, thank you for what you do. You know what? He's discouraged. He already knows what day he's resigning because he just doesn't want to fight the battle anymore. Do you know that 1,000 men leave the ministry every year and most of that is because of discouragement? They just get tired of the battle. They get tired of the fight. And you see, what we have to realize is when we're in those problems and those crisis moments, that's when God is trying to raise the level of our prayer life. God's trying to get us to learn to talk to him and to communicate to him because we cannot talk people into changing, but God can change people's hearts. Number two, respect the opposition. Verse 9, we set up a guard. Now, pray for protection, but by a deadbolt. I mean, don't just pray and say, Now, Lord, I know that your angels watch over me, and I know that you see everything and know everything, and so... I'm not going to worry about crime or anything else. I'm just going to leave my door open and go to bed tonight knowing that I'm protected by God. God's going to tell you to buy a lock and lock it. You see, be prayerful, but also be practical. Respect the opposition. Nehemiah didn't say, well, I've talked to God about it. I don't have anything to worry about. He set up a guard. He set up a watch. He was forewarned, and so he was forearmed. And we need to respect the opposition. Notice, we prayed and we set up a guard. There's a corporate response. It means this, that when one family in this church is under attack, all the families are under attack. When one person in this church family is discouraged, everybody is open to discouragement. When one is coming under the attack of the enemy, all are coming under the attack of the enemy. If one family has a prodigal son or daughter, then you have the chance of having a prodigal son or a daughter. And we have to respond corporately and respect the opposition that when God is doing something in an individual's life or when God is doing something in a church's life corporately, that the enemy is on the move. And we have to set a guard. Number three, do what you can. Verse 13. Then I stationed men in the lowest space behind the wall, the exposed places. Now, what he did, he did what he could do. He worked strategically. He recognized where he was vulnerable. Verse 16, from that day on, what happened? The builders wore swords. The builders wore swords. That may seem a little cumbersome to you, but there's a law of leadership here. Anytime you're building for God, you better be prepared for a battle. Anytime you decide to raise the level of your spiritual life, get ready for the enemy to come after you. Anytime you decide to do in your family what needs to be done spiritually, get ready for the enemy to come after you. 
Anytime your kids are growing in the Lord, get ready for the enemy to come after them. Do what you can do. Pray, respect the opposition, but do what you can do to cover all your bases. They covered the low places in the wall. They worked strategically. When God is doing something to build you up, the devil is doing something to battle in your life. And you need to do everything you can to cover your bases and to be prepared. Because if you don't, you'll get discouraged because he'll come in and he'll get you when you're not expecting it. You know, if you watch boxers, it's not the punch that they're expecting that gets them, it's the punch that they don't see coming that gets them. It's the sucker punch. It's the one you didn't see that was coming out from the side that just kind of swings across and knocks you out. And that's the punch that always gets us. You have to do what you can, and that is keep your eyes open, keep your mind alert, be ready for whatever the devil's going to do. Number four, never deal with discouragement alone. Verse 13, I station the people in families. Never deal with discouragement alone. You see, what he did was he made every member of the family have to think, if I run, if I quit, if I give up, then the enemy can come in and get my family and people I love and everything I care about. And so he put the people with those that they love the most in the areas that they were interested in, and he said, you need to stand, you need to watch, you need to be ready, you need to set a guard because the enemy's going to come. And the person he said that to knew, hey, you know what, if I don't do my part, it's not other people that are going to be affected. It's my family that's going to be affected. You see, God never intended us to be lone rangers. Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a command of Scripture in Hebrews. Why? Because we need the encouragement of the body. Now, let me tell you what happens when we get discouraged. We begin to withdraw. The very thing that we shouldn't do when problems are mounting in our lives that's what we do. We withdraw. We quit coming to Sunday school as much. We quit coming to church as much. We, we quit talking to people. We don't go out and eat as much, and we just kind of withdraw into a cocoon and a shell and a safe haven, and the lights get a little darker, and our houses get a little darker, and we don't listen to anything that's lively and encouraging because that discourages us that somebody else is, is having a good time right now. And, and we begin to just kind of pull all the things in, and we kind of wrap ourselves up in ourselves, and we kind of get in our own little huddle and we feel sorry for ourselves. Don't try to deal with discouragement alone. That's why you have your church family. That's why you have your Sunday school class. That's why you have the ministry of the people around you. Because you can't deal with it alone. You just deal with it alone. If you just keep looking in the mirror and telling yourself how bad it is, it's just going to get worse. You see, you need to quit doing this, saying, I've got a problem and I'm discouraged. And you need to start doing this. I need somebody to love me and help me. I need somebody to care about what's going on in my life. And isn't that one of the purposes of the church? To love other people? To minister to them in their time of need? And you need a church family that draws you in and keeps you going and doesn't and loves you enough that they don't let you isolate yourself. The most dangerous thing you can do when you're discouraged is to isolate yourself. 
When I get discouraged, I have a tendency that I have to watch. I just want to be alone. I don't want to be with anybody. I just want to go out in the garden, sit in the back, and eat worms. I mean, I just, you know, I just want to be alone. I don't want to talk to anybody about it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to discuss it. I, I just want to be by myself. And that's a dangerous thing to do. Because if you get caught in that, before you know it, you will have locked out the people who love you. And you will have pushed away the people who are trying to care for you because you won't let them into your life and you won't get honest enough to say, I'm really hurting. I really need some help. I really need some encouragement. I really need a sense that somebody understands what I'm going through. You see, you cannot deal with discouragement alone. It'll destroy you. Number five. This is the best one. Remember who's in control. Verse 14. Nehemiah said, When I saw their fear, I arose and spoke to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. And fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He says there's a reason to live. There's a reason to hope. There's a reason to believe. And if you're going to be a leader, one of the things you have to do for the people around you is you have to reaffirm and reassure them who's in control. God's in control. Notice what he says. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord. Verse 20, the last part of verse 20. Our God will fight for us. Now, I want you to look at verse 14, and I want you to mark two words. This is one of the problems that you have when you translate from one language to another. It says, do not be afraid, the Lord is awesome. Do not be afraid, the Lord is awesome. Two words, afraid and awesome. Two different words in your Bible, one word in Hebrew. Don't fear your problem, fear God. That's what he's saying. Now, do you see how much more significant that is than God is awesome? Because awesome has become kind of a trite word for, oh, man, that's awesome. I mean, we say that about everything. You got your food right at McDonald's. That's awesome. Actually got everything I ordered. That's awesome. You know, we've so watered down awesome. What Nehemiah is saying don't concentrate on your fear. Concentrate on the God who is to be feared, the God who is to be reverenced. It's not your problem. It's the Father that you concentrate on. Same word, identical word. Don't be afraid of this. Just fear God. Remember the Lord. You see, if you fear God, you don't fear man and you don't fear your circumstances. But if your eyes and your focus are off of God, then you start looking around at men and your circumstances and your problems, and all of a sudden they overwhelm you. And you're taken in by your problems and you're absorbed in your problems. But what Nehemiah is saying is remember the Lord. Fear the Lord. Listen, if you have a healthy fear of God, you don't have to worry about anything else. He's got everything else covered. There is, is an interesting thing that happens in mil military history. Typically, wars are fought because of some tragic defeat, especially when you look at the history of America. Uh, when you look at the liberation of Texas, 
Sam Houston rallied Texans from all around the state with, remember the Alamo, remember our defeat. 168 men died in the Alamo fighting for the independence of Texas. Remember the Alamo. And they went out and fought, and they won independence. Spanish-American War, remember the Maine. The Maine had been sunk, and it was a rallying point to bring people together and say, out of this defeat, we're going to have victory. World War I, remember the Lusitania sunk at the bottom of the ocean, but we're going to come back and we're going to win, and we're going to do it because we remember the Lusitania. World War II, hundreds of thousands of men went to war. Why? Remember Pearl Harbor. Remember what happened at Pearl Harbor. We don't want this to happen to us again. We will take a stand. We'll fight. We'll give our lives. Now, here's what's interesting about all that. All those phrases are built on the word remember. But notice what they're remembering. They're remembering a defeat in hopes of victory. All this will show you is how God thinks differently than man. God doesn't say, remember your rubbish. Remember what you were like before you were saved. Remember your sin. Remember your problems. Remember your adversity. Remember your pain. Remember your heartache. Remember your brokenness. He says, remember the Lord. Don't remember the defeat. Remember what makes you victorious. Remember the Lord. And you see, what we need today is a battle cry among Christians. Don't remember all your problems. Remember the Lord. Don't remember all the obstacles. Remember the Lord. Don't remember the rubbish that seems to be overwhelming you. Remember the Lord. Don't remember the dark times. Remember that He is the light of the world. And your cry today needs to be, Lord, I remember you. And the God who delivered Abraham and who delivered Moses and who delivered Israel and the God who delivered Nehemiah and the God who allowed David to rule and reign and the God of Solomon and the God of Jacob and the God of the apostles and the God of the New Testament who stood before all and said, the church can even storm the gates of hell. That God lives in me today. And no matter what's going on around me, I know one thing. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Remember the Lord. Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Kett. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.